Let us open the Holy Scriptures to the book of Numbers, and secondly to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. But we begin in Numbers, chapter 21, and we'll read the verses 1 through 9. Our text will be drawn from John chapter 3, in in which the Lord Jesus makes reference to the incident in Numbers 21 with the snakes. And so we're going to read Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9. The Israelites, of course, are in the desert. Uh, They're nearing the end of their 40 years in the desert. We read this. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave them over and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, so that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who was bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and read the account of the crucifixion of our Lord. We'll read the verses 16 through 30, page 1152. Verse 16, or 16b, where the paragraph begins, So they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. 
When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I invite you to turn with me in the Scriptures to the Gospel of John chapter 3. We'll pick up our series of sermons where we left off, and it so happens that the Lord Jesus here makes reference to His death on the cross, so we can, as it were, kill two birds with one stone here this, this Good Friday morning. The uh, focus will be the verses 13, 14, and 15, where Jesus says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That'll be our text this morning, and in response, we'll sing hymn 64 about how the Lord with His precious blood has purchased us everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are gathered here this Good Friday morning to remember, of course, the death, the death on a cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is no doubt the central teaching of the Christian faith that Jesus died for on the cross to pay for your sins and mine, to pay for the sins of everyone who believes in Him. And this is exactly the teaching that Nicodemus and the crowds who are in the background here in John 3, that Nicodemus and the crowds were missing. You'll recall last time we saw that as a result of Jesus' miracles, many of the crowds and Nicodemus too, they said that they believed in the name of Jesus. But we discovered that 
Jesus himself knew that they did not, in fact, believe with a true faith. And in our text now, this morning, he's showing Nicodemus, because he's still talking to Nicodemus, who is the teacher of Israel, he's showing him what they were missing. It's one thing to believe in the power of a miracle worker and feel confident that this man could be the Messiah, but it's quite another to believe in a man who is nailed to a Roman cross. What power does a crucified man have? Nicodemus, can you believe in the Son of Man whom you will see lifted up on a cross? whom you will see lifted up on a pole like a serpent in the days of Moses was. Can you believe in a man like that? Will you believe, Nicodemus? Will we believe in this man? That's the issue of both Good Friday and of our text as I bring you this word of the Lord. The Son of Man had to be lifted up for your salvation. We'll see that He was lifted up in death and lifted up in victory. Now, Nicodemus, you'll recall, has expressed already disbelief and confusion in response to Jesus telling him that he needed to be born from above, that he had to be born of the Spirit. And so Jesus scolds him for his lack of faith once again. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? As you work your way through that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, we might well imagine that Jesus would end the conversation with Nicodemus soon after that and send this stubborn, unbelieving Pharisee on his way. But the compassion of the Lord won't let Nicodemus go without further instruction. The scolding ends in verse 12, and then Jesus continues right on from verse 13 to 21, explaining to this proud Pharisee the true gospel of salvation and calling him to believe. He, he hangs on talking to Nicodemus. The patience and the concern and the persistence of our Savior is quite something, don't you think? Sometimes we might have people in our lives who are just as stubborn as Nicodemus, just as perhaps immature in faith. You try and explain the Christian way of things, but, but they resist. They don't do what they ought to do before the face of God. Or maybe those persons are ignorant even though they've been taught it. They seem stuck in first gear and you get very weary of speaking with them. It would be natural to give up and throw in the towel, wouldn't it? But if Jesus could go that extra mile with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, and let's be honest, Jesus has gone the extra mile with us, hasn't He? then we can go the extra mile with those in our lives who are like that, right? If you're struggling with someone like that right now, don't give up. In the strength of the Spirit of Christ who lives in you, keep persisting. 
So Jesus presses on with Nicodemus. He takes time to explain the, the deeper things, things that he calls in verse 12 the heavenly things. Now, Jesus distinguishes between the earthly things He's been talking about and the heavenly things He's about to say. The earthly things refer to those, the need for spiritual birth, for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and, and make, give a heart change to, to the people. Those are things that Ezekiel the prophet wrote about and Jeremiah the prophet wrote about and John the Baptist have been preaching about the need for a heart change. Those are earthly things because they were accessible through that revelation to the people on the earth. But now, Jesus, in verse 13, tells Nicodemus something new. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man. And he will do it again in verse 15. And you recall we ran into that title in chapter 1, verse 15. It's a title that Jesus gives to himself frequently. In fact, it's his most common way of referring to himself. And you might recall from that earlier sermon that this title comes out of the vision in Daniel 7 where we read that one like a son of man comes with the clouds to be presented before Yahweh, the Ancient of Days. That vision describes the glorious ascension of the one who is like a son of man, and at his ascension he is given a glorious everlasting kingdom. So you can imagine that that vision of Daniel 7 was well-loved by every faithful Israelite, like Nicodemus, for example, for that vision promised salvation for God's people under the righteous rule of this glorious figure called the Son of Man. So the instant Jesus uses this title for Himself, Nicodemus would have picked up on that. He's the teacher of Israel. He would have made the connection to Daniel 7, and then he would have been amazed stunned that this Jesus of Nazareth dared to claim to be this magnificent, most honorable, royal figure. Jesus, you son of man? Wow. But Jesus is only getting started. That's just the tip of the iceberg. He's, his teaching will turn Nicodemus's world upside down for he says in verse 13 that before the Son of Man ascends and fulfills the vision of Daniel, the Son of Man first has to descend to earth. Now, in our translation of verse 13, it sounds like Jesus is referring to His ascension in the past tense. But you could justifiably translate the first part of verse 13 as a general statement in the present tense. So you could read it this way, no one ascends into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nobody ascends to heaven except that one individual. Jesus is stressing the uniqueness of Himself and the uniqueness of His task and His mission. Only the one who previously came down from heaven to earth 
will be able and will eventually ascend to heaven. Now, that's not mentioned in Daniel 7, not explicitly. All we see in Daniel 7 is the ascension, but Jesus is bringing out what is implied that there was first a descent to the earth. And as teacher, as the one who comes from above, he's revealing this heavenly thing to Nicodemus and to us. So there's, there's two things that Nicodemus and we should know about the Son of Man. First is that before his ascension and reception into heavenly glory in Daniel's vision, he earlier descended from heaven to earth. So heaven is the Son of Man's starting point. Heaven is the place where the one who is like a Son of Man lives that indicates that the one who is like a son of man is more than a man. He certainly is human, but he's also of heaven. He's also divine. That's the implication. That Jesus means to speak this way is clear from verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, where Jesus will say to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He calls Himself the Son of God just two verses later. So already in verse 13, Jesus is revealing the Son of Man. He is divine. And the second thing Nicodemus needs to know is, before the Son of Man ascends to receive the throne of the kingdom, he first has to go to the earth, come down, and complete a mission. And what mission is that? Well, Jesus right away explains it, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's his mission. That's something Nicodemus had no clue about, nor did the crowds. And Nicodemus and the crowds, that's what they had to come to accept. That's what they had to come to believe in order to have true faith that the great king of Daniel 7, the great ruler, the great son of man, could and would only receive that kingdom and glory if he was first lifted up like a snake on a pole. Like a snake on a pole. you got to feel a bit sorry for Nicodemus. I mean, if his head was spinning with all that Jesus was saying before this, he would positively be bamboozled by what he's hearing now. How can you possibly say, Jesus, that Israel's great Messiah King of Daniel 7 would somehow first be treated like the bronze serpent that Moses made in the desert? What does that incident in Numbers 21 have to do with the vision of Daniel 7 and the glorious Son of Man? And even ourselves today, as Christians in the 21st century, we have the, the whole Bible at our disposal, unlike Nicodemus. We have Old and New Testament. We know the whole gospel story. We, we know the cross and the resurrection. Even we have our questions, right? We want to ask the Lord Jesus, Jesus, what, what do fiery snakes 1,500 years earlier have to do with your work in saving sinners? 
What relevance does that bronze serpent in the Sinai wilderness have to do with the cross of Jesus outside Jerusalem? Well, quite a lot as it turns out. Maybe we can turn to Numbers 21 for a few moments together and have a look at that together. Numbers 21, page 164. As I mentioned, we find ourselves here near the end of Israel's 40-year stay in the desert. You will, I hope, recall that 40 years earlier, the Israelites as a nation, they had stood on the doorstep of Canaan. God had promised to give them the land of Canaan and to defeat the enemies before them. But Israel did not trust the Lord 40 years earlier. They complained that the giants would squash them. And so they refused to go in, and God punished them by turning them back into the desert to wander for 40 years until every male and female who was over the age of 20 had died. So by the time of Numbers 21, most of that older generation had, in fact, died in the desert. The oldest among them would have been getting close to 60 years of age. So this You have to understand the background here. This new generation of Numbers 21, they had seen, they had experienced some incredible things during those 40 years. The older ones of that group could certainly remember seeing the plagues upon the Egyptians. They would have been teenagers or, or children. And how could they forget having walked through the Red Sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left? I mean, you don't forget things like that, right? The sound of God's voice booming from the top of Mount Sinai, declaring His law, that would have loomed large in their memories. And even more, for every day of those 40 years, they had seen the Lord. They had seen the Lord in the pillar of cloud by day and in the pillar of fire by night. They had seen water come out of the rock at God's command. And every day, even in their rebellious times, God provided for them the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven as it appeared on the ground. And more recently in Numbers 21, we read that, God had granted them a great victory over the Canaanite king of Arad who had come out and needlessly attacked them. So they'd seen a ton of God's kindness and power and goodness toward them. They had also seen His anger. The bare fact that they had to wander in the desert for 40 years was a daily reminder of God's wrath against the wickedness of the nation. And these people also had witnessed the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, which had taken place in that time frame. They had watched the earth split open and swallow up them and their families. And when the people at that time still rebelled against the Lord, they had seen Him issue a plague killing 14,700 of their fellow Israelites. That's background. So, this generation that we're reading about in, in Numbers 21, they had experienced and seen more in their lifetime of God's grace 
and God's anger, of God's mercy and God's wrath. They'd seen it all more than any other generation. And yet, what do we find said of them in verse 4 or verse 5? And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Talking about manna. We loathe the bread you send us, God. It's as if the people haven't learned a thing. They show this new generation displays the very same rebellious spirit as their fathers had. The very same rebellious nature that lives in you and me. Just the same, beloved. We're born with it. We have to realize, brothers and sisters, that this is a description here in Numbers 21. It's a description not just of the Israelites, but of the church. In fact, of people in their natural state. This is what people who have not been born from above act like. If it were not for the wind of the Holy Spirit, if it were not for the power of God's Word at work in our hearts, you and I would be right there with them, lifting up our hands with those Israelites, hand against God and, and against His chosen servants. They rejected His chosen bread, called it worthless. They wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt imagining that life there would be so much better and easier than life with the Lord. Do we not get tempted in the same way? Life in the bosom of the world, the unbelieving world, it looks a whole lot less difficult sometimes, doesn't it? It looks a whole lot more fun sometimes. It looks a whole lot more satisfying and fulfilling than life in the company of God and God's people. You see, the biggest stumbling block for the Israelites was not the desert and it wasn't the giants of the Canaanites. It was themselves. It was their very own sin natures which is the same stumbling block for you and for me and for every human being. And what do rebellious sinners who raise their fists to God, what do they deserve from the hand of the righteous and holy God but death? And that's precisely what befalls the people there in the desert in the form of these fiery serpents. That whole wilderness area was and still is known for a variety of poisonous snakes. And apparently there is one snake who is so, whose bite is so deadly, it causes so much pain, it's like having fire in your body. And so they, the people called them fiery snakes. Its poison was like fire in your blood. And notice who it is that is in charge of these snakes, verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The Lord sent the snakes. 
He sent the snakes to put his sinful people to death. Do we realize, beloved, the kind of God that we have? To worship this God, to be at peace with this God is the most wonderful thing ever. It is life, but to have this holy God angry with you is the most dreadful thing ever. Do we give thought to that? That we don't trifle with the almighty holy God? That we don't think we can disrespect Him and just get away with it? God sent fiery serpents. Why would He send serpents? Why not send a plague? He did that in chapter 14. Why not send a windstorm or a sandstorm to inflict the people and kill the people? Why not send an earthquake? Well, it seems it's because the people crave to return to Egypt, even still now, almost 40 years since they left. And in Egypt, the serpent was a highly respected animal as a symbol of divine power. If you see a, a picture um, of the pharaohs from that time period, you often can see them with snakes, either on their crown or on their staff. Those snakes were thought to protect the pharaohs. In fact, serpents that spit fire or glowed like fire were a symbol of Egyptian power and ancient tales told of such serpents protecting the pharaohs. So God's choice of punishment is very specific and very deliberate. And the punishment fits the crime, doesn't it? Israel, you say you want to go back to Egypt, do you? You say you want to go beneath the power of the serpent. Well, all right, here you go. I'll bring the power of the serpent to you right now here in this desert and I'll remind you of the true horror of what living under the power of the serpent is like. The true madness of wanting to live in Egypt. Pain is what you'll get. Suffering and death is all you can expect from rebellion and wanting to be under the power of the serpent. And it's that desire to go back to Egypt after 40 years. Think about that. It's that rebellious desire that required the Son of Man to come down from heaven in order to remove that stubborn, rebellious nature once and for all. Numbers 21 describes the human condition and the absolute need for a Good Friday, the need for the Son of Man to be lifted up like the bronze serpent was, the people could never save themselves. Nicodemus and all you Pharisees, remember that conversation still going on here in John 3, you cannot save yourselves by your so-called good deeds and obedience to the law. Nobody can. Our hearts betray us because of their rebellious nature. 
This generation of the Israelites, of all the generations of the Israelites, had the most advantages in terms of experiencing God's care and grace. They had seen things most Israelites after them would never see. And after all of that, they still rebelled. We're the same. So somebody has to come from outside of Israel. Somebody has to come from heaven to find a way to snuff out that evil spirit within all of us. And that someone, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who descended from heaven in order to be lifted up on a cross in death. And by so doing, He could pay, He did pay, for all our sin. And by so doing, He achieved victory over our sin nature that could not otherwise be beaten. The new birth that Nicodemus needed and should have known about, that victory over the evil instincts of all our hearts, it's only possible in the cross. You don't have the Spirit come to you in regeneration unless the cross, unless the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross in payment of our sin. Jesus is very, very clear about what must take place, about what the plan of God is, and what a person must believe in order to receive eternal life. He says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a must. It's a necessity. It's a divine requirement. Jesus knew this from the start of his ministry. And this, this, it's a bit cloaked, this reference, being lifted up. But as you read the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that language more often, John 12, for example. And it clearly points ahead to being lifted up on the cross to die. Now, Nicodemus could not possibly know that at that moment. It was a, a kind of a hidden reference. But later, when Nicodemus was at the cross, we know that from the end of John's gospel, at Golgotha, Nicodemus will understand. The Holy Spirit will connect the dots for him. But for us who know the whole story, Jesus makes a parallel between his future being lifted up on the cross and that past action of Moses lifting up the serpent on a pole. And we want to ask, okay, how does that work exactly? What's the parallel? I mean, we can quickly see that, 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 that Jesus was lifted up and the serpent was lifted up, but is that all there is to it? Well, there's a bit more. Back in Numbers, we see that the sending of the serpents had two effects. One was that many of the people died. That's distressing, and on, on every level, that's distressing. The other effect of those serpents, though, is quite different, and it's encouraging on every level. We find that in 21 verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord so that he take away the serpents from us. Isn't that a beautiful result? of those fiery serpents? Do you see the grace of the Lord at work there? 
Righteous punishment came down from God, but it also served as a corrective to sin. It served as a spur to true heart change. The people, they actually repent. Compared to all the other times of rebellion over the previous 40 years, this is one of Israel's most prompt, most sincere, most full confessions of sin and repentance. And isn't that a miracle of grace? Behold. And they ask Moses to pray. It's a posture of humility. Pray for us. And they ask something specific. Pray that God would take away the snakes. Moses does pray, we read. And God hears the prayer favorably, but he does not take away the snakes. Do you notice that? Of course, the Lord could have. He could have taken away the snakes instantaneously. In a moment of time, He could have healed all those who had been bitten, but the Lord chose not to work that way. Sometimes in His wisdom, God leaves His people under His disciplining hand for a little longer, even though we have repented and even though we are praying for relief day and night, because sometimes the Lord has other things He wants to teach us, so He leaves us in and with the snake bites. And in this case, that other thing that He wants to teach is the very way of salvation that would come clear in the future in the Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. He commands Moses to make a fiery serpent out of bronze, so that would have taken time to fashion out of metal the figure of a snake that resembled those serpents causing havoc and death. And while Moses was busy organizing that, more people would have been bitten, and people would have been suffering still. The Lord was teaching. This was very important to the Lord, how this was going to unfold. He was about to present the solution, not just to the serpents, not just to the poison, not just to the illness or death, the solution to all of Israel's sin problems. Moses put that bronze serpent on a pole, high on a pole. Now, we hear the word pole, we think, well, like a an ordinary pole of, of some kind, but in, in Hebrew, it's a very particular kind of pole. It's the same word translated elsewhere in Scripture as the word banner. A banner would fly on the top of a pole, kind of like we fly flags. It would be some kind of symbolic sign placed high up there so that everybody could see and a banner was particularly used when the troops would go out to battle. You'd fly the banner of the king. It would typically have colors and, and a shape or a figure of some kind that represented the, the authority of, of the king. So the troops, they would fight under that king's authority and, and they, would, they would fight under his banner. And when the battle was won, all the troops would rally back to the king under the banner. They would come there rejoicing in the victory. So here, here is the Lord God taking the fiery serpent 
of Egypt, which God had used to inflict death upon His people, and He's hoisting it up in replica form as a banner to proclaim victory over death. The serpent is God's enemy, the one in Egypt and ultimately the one that first appeared in the Garden of Eden. And if you hoist a symbol of your enemy on high, on a pole as a banner, what are you doing? You're mocking your enemy. You're declaring your enemy to be impotent, to be helpless, to be totally defeated. So the bronze serpent, you see, is a banner of grace up there on the pole. It's a picture of God's victory over serpents, over the serpent, over ultimately the great serpent, Satan. For with the raising up of that banner, God issues a promise. Everyone who is bitten and who sees my banner, who sees that bronze serpent, they shall live. All it took for the people to be spared death was to believe God's promise and do what He asked and look at the banner. took faith. They had to crawl off their sick bed, out of their tent, and they had to look at that symbol, the symbol of what had just inflicted so much pain upon them, and then they would be made well just by looking upon God's saving work. And that's exactly what happens, brothers and sisters, when we look upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The parallel is complete. Though Jesus is not the cause of sin like Satan is, and though Jesus never sinned like we do, yet Jesus was made to be sin for us. The Son of Man was sent from heaven to earth to stand in the sinner's place. He had to be baptized in the Jordan like a common sinner was. He was judged by Jew and Gentile in his trial to be a criminal. And he was left hanging on a Roman cross. Hanging there by his Father in heaven as if he were sin personified. He was made to be sin, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Jesus, we can say, became the curse to take away the curse from us. And what do we have to do? All we have to do is look to Jesus in true faith. Do you see why, brothers and sisters, the cross is both a place of shame and a place of honor? A place of horrible suffering and a place of everlasting glory and victory? The cross of Good Friday, that's God's banner. And we are called to rally to it. The crowds of Jews who were impressed with Jesus' powerful miracles, they later became disgusted at the weakness and humiliation of the cross. They couldn't stand the thought that a man on a cross could be their Messiah. And they turned their back on Him. But not us. We look at the cross. We look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. 
with wondrous eyes. We see in there the power of God at work in bringing true salvation, the salvation we absolutely need. It's our sin which causes misery and suffering and death in the world. And the Son of Man is paying the price for our sin there on the cross. And so the cause, the cause of all that's wrong in this world Brothers and sisters, that cause has been taken away. Believe that with all your heart. New spiritual birth has begun for all who have ears to hear. For all on whom the Holy Spirit has been working through the Word of God, renewal and restoration are underway. And with your new heart, you may begin to enjoy that new eternal life with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already today. Your guilt is gone. Your rebellious heart, it's being converted more and more into the submissive heart of a child of God. So let the cross of Jesus Let the the cross of the Son of Man be the banner of God's love over you. And may you rally to it today and forever. Amen.